Hi, and welcome to Rule of Carnage. Uh, this is where myself, Glenn Ford, a games designer and developer, talks to this guy, Mike Hutchinson, also games designer and developer, about designing better miniatures games. Um, now, the last couple of conversations we had that just went up, we're talking about um, player personality types, specifically in relation to how people approach the rules of the game and the army building the game and the actual like playing of the game. But um, interestingly, Mike uh, popped up on a podcast I was listening to the other day where um, he, he said something that I thought was quite interesting is that the sorts of games that these are, these minis games, have a bizarrely high level of prep level before somebody is like allowed to engage with the game. And it's something that comes up sort of constantly that this is a hobby and a game that it, mm. that it has these two, two sort of separate but like really deeply intrinsically linked parts that genuinely pull it out as unusual to sort of almost everything else because like just before we came on uh to record I was talking to Mike about I remember like the old days I, I had a ZX Spectrum as a young man and like you would get books of games that were just code you had to type in before you were allowed to play the game like thick books of code and that this is this is like an entirely appropriate way and this is in an era where you'd get a manual that was like 40 pages before you expected to sort of be allowed to play a game and obviously right and like this would be like today if you were sitting down to play you know call of duty and the game was there but you weren't allowed to play it until you learned to program your own player character like that's that's essentially what we're dealing with here when it comes to miniature war games, where they say, look, there's a load of fun contained here, but you can't have it until you learn how to do an entire hobby, sticking things together and building things and painting them and building the terrain to go around it. And, you know, no, I'm not going to tell you what this is going to look like. You're going to have to research it and figure it out and watch other people. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. obviously, like for, for, for people like you and me. Who grew up doing it like there must have been a time where it didn't make sense and of course this is what the games workshop hobby stores their retail presence is so excellent at they provide this sort of physical example of it and then a bunch of people who can you can talk to but like i don't know that we really remember what it was like to be you know the time before we knew that you could turn egg boxes upside down and paint them gray mm, absolutely and i think it's super interesting like how many people of our generation you talk to about their their path into the hobby and it was things like hero quest space crusade uh, uh space hulk which were board games with a bunch of minis in and like personally it was like okay well i've got these this bunch of like gene stealers what else can i do with them oh there's this game system where you can put them down and play with them on the table. So I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about maybe some archetypes of like how people approach the hobby and maybe how that means those people might approach your game and try and talk about ways you can sort of connect those two things together. And obviously this would be a much more sort of anecdotal than the previous conversation because as far as I'm aware, this isn't something that's been given sort of open study, but, you know, it's it's like 30 odd years for each of us of anecdotal evidence, so it might have some weight to it. I thought what might be fun in a way to sort of before talk about some more of the archetypes is to go into a little bit of self-analysis um, mm. on the way that we approach the hobby. And I think specifically because for me, uh, for people who don't like know, I feel like me and Mike have really weirdly different ways of approaching the hobby side of the game. So, um, for example, you know, a sort of a, a bit of sort of self-introduction. 
I don't like particularly painting minis. I have never bought a mini that I didn't have a plan for as to what game I would put it into on the tabletop in my life, ever. Never parted with... with Minis are a functional object for you. They they are absolutely a functional object. I want to paint them sufficiently to be allowed to play with them and have no further interest in it than that. But at the same time, time you will paint them. Absolutely, yes. That's that's a you know that's a Marcus that's a self respect thing. You paint that you paint it, but also it's a, for me it's sort of that thing of like maybe it's getting the money's worth out of it. It's like the number of times I see people who have paid, I know hundreds of pounds for like an army, and then don't engage with it to paint it. It's almost like you're, you're sort of leaving money on the table. But equally, as Mike has pointed out once or twice. I heavily convert every army I have. I put unnecessary and excessive amounts of time into uh, modding my armies. You would think that given my attitude, I'd glue them together, stick them on a base, basic paint job and move on. Um, But I just, I don't. I, I model, I convert, I create backgrounds and I create stories from them. And sometimes I'm not really sure why I have those drives going on. They seem very sort of, counter to can I can I I provide an outside perspective yeah no absolutely you get in the last couple of conversations where we're talking about the magic the gathering player personas uh, we talked about the sort of persona that you are which is a player that wants to use the engagement with the game as a form of self-expression and to sort of say hey I have a unique path that's different to other people's path through the rules thicket to victory and I I sort of perceive your converting of the army as a, as another flavor of that, which is it's not like a victory so much, but like there definitely is tears of how good your hobby is. And to get to a really high level of hobby, you both want a very well painted and thematic army. But for extra points, it's like a unique theme and the and the models support that theme. And that theme is something that you like. I think w- one of the things that that like interacts really nicely is you come up with a unique way to victory from a rules perspective and then you find a rationale in the story to to model the army so i think it's another reflection of that player persona type where it's like well i'm going to be uniquely awesome at this where no one else has done it i'm not going to see an amazing conversion and go oh that's cool i will also do that conversion because then my conversion will be cool yeah no absolutely i do i i think and thinking about this i think it's like that seems to be like how deeply ingrained into that sort of johnny mindset that i am that it's like okay i want to do an empire army that only has engineer characters why on earth would such an army exist that's a very bizarre thing okay maybe they're this and they've been like caught weirdly out in the open so that means that my my spearmen have to be like all converted up pistoliers that are that are grouped round in a last stand because they're not spearmen because if i had proper spearmen my army wouldn't only have engineer characters in it this explains it and now i have to go on this this whole journey um and then equally i think sometimes i find it quite interesting that you are you're very miniatures driven i think as as a hobbyist but you were saying the other day that you you very rarely convert or like kit bash or sort of um tinker with the miniature that you very often sort of get it and 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 have it sort of as it was intended i think i i run a very broad spectrum like because sometimes so for example 
for example, you won't be able to see it super well, but like this is this is a uh, you can't see his face because I painted green. <laughs> this is a, a Gazgrel Thracker like stand-in model. It's completely scratch built from a um, a Age of Sigmar like Oruk sort of big boss, and it's got like an entire sculpted tank base. And these are like scratch cons. Like I will do heavy conversion work but at the same time i will quite happily stick together a bunch of line troops exactly as the box describes and it's because i think sometimes like enjoying a model kit in the way that you know i used to with an airfix kit where there is just a joy in a sort of perfection of approaching the kit as the kit is putting the kit together at a high uh level of, of sort of skill and and finish like that has its own pleasure and for me kit bashing is almost like a different hobby and sometimes an army will say to me you must kit bash this this must be a very intricate thing and sometimes um uh and sometimes so like i'm, I'm building a warband for a sort of in inquisitor 28 thing and obviously each model is painstakingly you know sculpted up from the ground by sticking bits of my fingers together but i've got some space marines over there and i'm just building them exactly as they look on the box because whatever like it's you know there's a there's a pleasure in that um but i guess the other thing is that i have a sort of i have a slightly weird respect for particularly metal and sort of boutique miniatures where if i've got an old miniature like our friend Rufus gave me some metal rogue trader orcs this week. Like, I'm not going to mess with those. I'm just going to enjoy them as they are. And then maybe at some point they will leave my possession and they will be, you know, artifacts for other people. Or equally, if I've acquired a lovely resin miniature from somewhere, I kind of want to enjoy what the creator gave me. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting thing for myself that I haven't like fudged around with my Malifaux minis because what's the point? Malifaux, like in first edition, didn't let you like give options to the, the right. models. So they were exactly what the profile would represent. Also, I think you sometimes you you don't necessarily so I'm of the opinion that's, that... so, that's so weird because I had too many Malifaux models and I didn't really like the plastic ones. So many of my plastic Malifaux models got cut up and reassembled because I started making all kinds of proxy models. And so like it's weird, even within yeah. even within our mismatched approaches, we've swapped over for one particular range of miniatures for some reason. Yeah. And presumably it's because like the game doesn't permit it. But on my side, I don't give a hoot whether the game permits it or not. I'm like, these models would look amazing if they had roughs and bigger hats. And Yeah, yeah. And so I think, yeah, fi figuring out what is driving your players at that point. And it's like, um, I... I have to get an army finished. It has to be started. It has to be finished. It's a whole story. Um, you know, you're, you, you, you don't have never, the obsessive... I've never finished an army. You don't have the obsessive mindset of going like, you know, the idea of getting to the end of an army and then like being two or three units left and just going, yeah, I think it's time to move on to the next thing. It's just like, that's, <laughs> that's insane. Just finish it. Like, you know, get closure on that thing. Yeah, I've never finished anything. I have a couple of like thousand point armies that are fully painted, but like they're not a finished army because there's another thousand points that I have, you know, in various states of construction or primed or or whatever. So I just have a series of projects that I rotate through as my whim changes. Mm. And uh, I don't give a flying hoot if any of them ever get finished. So sort of maybe to sort of move on to what might be some of the sort of 
archetypes of like the way people engage with the hobby part of the game um, and in relation to not finishing. And I want to try and track these into what you can do with rule sets and and, and design to sort of encourage these people. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, th- there are a couple that feel a bit sort of like I, I don't. I don't understand this approach to it, and I, and I'll just drop one of those in. Well, so just before before you before you enter that section, so I think maybe for this conversation we'll kind of maybe constrain ourselves. We'll leave maybe terrain and board building on the t- on the table, boom boom, and maybe we can come back to that in a second conversation because I feel like that's equally important the DIY nature of the, the the play area, but maybe we can cover that in a separate conversation. Well, this is the thing I think, and I think also there's, I think there are interesting, um, so a couple of the sort of ideas of archetypes I think of is, are that there are people who are more, as much, if not more interested in the sort of the table construction and the train construction than the minis construction. I think there is the sort of the, the host type, you know, who wants to have their table and bring people to their table and, and wants that table to sort of, be particularly impressive um they're this they're the rare sort of person who will paint up npcs for a for a scenario uh, rather than just moving using like um bases and minis and, uh, and models and, and I, I think and i think further they are the player because i'm this player as well who not only will provide a lovely set of terrain uh, as a host but will also probably buy two armies for every game and I and I think and I think since since we're sort of sort of started to talk about this, I think that the host is a good example of a player type that can really be encouraged by a set of rules because mm-hmm. the sort of person who is interested in building terrain and interested in building a tabletop, I think is obviously going to be quite interested in games that interact with that terrain and interact with the tabletop and suggest to them it's a good idea to have different sorts of pools or different sorts of forests and elevation is like super i i often think that one of the the quickest shorthands for telling if a rule set is a narrative rule set is whether it has rules for climbing jumping and falling Right. As soon as you see that a rule set has has those sort of three rules, it's like, okay, this is doing something more narrative. Whereas if a rule set doesn't have that in, it's a bit more sort of meant to be strategic or or crunchy. I think this this player type, um because I <clears throat> I have approached I approached second edition Malifaux in this way, and I've seen some people in the Hobgoblin Discord approaching Hobgoblin's Chaos of War tables in the same way. Like the behavior is <clears throat> you read the rules, you get excited about playing the game, and then you get a piece of paper and you write down all of the different like terrain types or objective types or like special counters that you're going to need. And so I went through and I went like, okay, so I'm going to need like an occult book token and I'll sculpt something there and I'm going to need like a place for indoors and a place for outside and so I've seen people in the Hobgoblin Discord go through my uh, Chaos of War tables which are the like d66 tables that allow you to sort of procedurally generate a fantasy fun time and they will go and they'll go okay so I'm going to need six columns of rock and two bridges to go over a chasm I'm going to need a chasm and they'll like itemize all these things because in order to be the perfect host but also to like squeeze the maximum amount of hobby juice out of this rule system, you're like, oh, great, you've given me a whole set of tasks to do, activities to engage with. And so I think providing a very generic terrain system from a rules perspective can be can be can be improved upon, can provide more utility if it's then 
like backed up with some level of specificity about what it is that you will need to play the game and the players that don't care will just ignore it and they will just substitute in a plastic circle like a blank base or something and they won't care yeah no 100 percent. i have i have um sets of mini bases with numbers written on them in gold sharpie for 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 when i meant to have put down objective tokens or... i mean you you've played you've played games where there's lots of walls because it's like an internal thing and you'll just use like strips of paper flat paper or even just draw on a whiteboard yeah no i, I can't do that it doesn't make any sense to my brain yeah no absolutely yeah i i have she, i have rolls of wallpaper for spreading across the table and drawing terrain onto because yeah that that's that's the thing that interests me in engagement game so i do think this is one of the things where it's like you can go over the top but you can go a long way before you go over the top you're not going to put off the players who don't care um so, sort of to a reasonable degree so i wonder if there's a sort of four or two by two here because i do wonder if we're maybe conflating two axes here one is i care a lot about the um one is one is i want to be a good host and provide a, a fantastic place to play the game and a way of, of sharing the game experience but the other is this interest in the miniature reality i'm not sure exactly how to describe it but like as a kid like the beginnings of my journey into this hobby were like i was fundamentally fascinated by the miniaturization of reality and fantasy and like the fact that you can build little pieces of terrain and they can have details on them and like that is just lovely and interesting and i think there are people who um who will go very very high up on that spectrum um in our rule of carnage discord uh uh someone was sharing their phenomenal um like uh necromunda sort of inquisitor terrain where he's very carefully built lots of modular pieces and not only do they fit together in a very functional way but like if you zoom in the whole thing is as detailed as a video game like level is it's got all these little little moments and like you zoom into a corner and you're like oh that totally makes sense like all of these pieces have been arranged in a way that makes sense on a miniature way like i know i can almost see the scholar that works in this corner or i can see the mechanic that has left this pipe unfixed and it's just you know that level of detail is well up there but i don't think that that person has to be doing it to be a host they could be doing it because they're just purely obsessed with the with the craft and so i think you know we all I, want to know someone in that upper right hand corner who both really wants to provide the perfect host and will spend hours making a perfect yeah and i think before we, before we sort of move on from this section of the conversation i think it's, I, I i think probably you've got some sort of scatter plot somewhere where the the indices of this are something along the lines of there's a sort of completionist approach which is the game says i need these things to play the game properly i want a checklist and i'll go down and make sure that i've got them so that i can achieve all the rules moments um there's the sort of the table modeler who wants inspiration to build a particularly beautiful table and then would like it to pay out ideally within the rules but like hitting their inspiration points is probably the most important thing there's the thing we talked about in the last conversation you touched on in the last conversation which is the sort of the cinematographer who wants a rule set that offers them the chance for like cool cinematic moments i want to be able to wall run up to that balcony jump onto it and then swan dive off to do something spectacular because i want those to be sort of those cinematic moments and the 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 more sort of the social end of that aspect the person who wants to build a tabletop and say i have the bespoke tabletop 
come to me let's let's enjoy this thing i did together mm. and i think the people you know people who approach the like the terrain end of the modeling you know probably are somewhere around on that scatter diagram pulled in one another direction but those are all things you can hit with your rule set for people you can give them that checklist of these are technically the things you require this is your shopping list enjoy acquiring the shopping list these are the inspirational images I'm going to give you about it. Here's a temple yeah. of like the blind god. This is what it looks like. Here are the cinematic moments of how you interact with that terrain. And here is the idealized tabletop that you can offer people and, and bring them in and socialize with them. So what so, so so to 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 make that concrete, what I've done in Hobgoblin is three things. One is I've provided a set of general terrain traits, keywords where I'm trying to make as much as possible and go back and find the episode where Glenn rants about rough terrain um, for more for more detail on this. But like provide a set of rules where interacting with the terrain is worth your time and is a is a net positive experience. So it's worth having terrain on the table because it's not just slowing you down or making things irritating. The second thing is I then immediately provided a table of examples where it's like, OK, so if you had a like if you had a mystical ruin, it would have these terrain traits if you had like a fungal grove a mushroom grove it would have these traits and so by providing 12 or 15 of those i sort of give you the beginnings of your shopping list for what you're going to need and then i go further in the d66 chaos of war tables where i say oh well at the beginning of the game you might choose to roll a dice and it will tell you that you must have six columns of rock so you better have six columns of rock or you're gonna have to re-roll so yeah. I think those are ways that you can build that sort of build up to that yeah, so I, th I think those are some sort of neat ideas of maybe the ways that sort of more terrain or table-driven hobbyists might approach your game. That seems like a good place to take a quick break. I think the two sort of like most polar opposites on this is the sort of games are an excuse to paint miniatures versus the you know miniatures are a necessity to play these games sort of mindsets um it's like uh, on the first end of um the, the scale there's you know the the ink 28 community is is a great community that's extremely sort of creative but i do think that there are not but there are a lot of people in that community who almost never play the game or have no interest in playing a game. They want to be sort of driven and inspired to the model making and the model creation. And there's certainly people throughout the hobby who are on the end of it. But I think it's interesting that... Right, and there's, there's, like, there's people even further on that side who just paint and don't even care. And another expression of this is I buy a lot of models because I'm like, oh, that model's cool. I want it. I want it. And then I have it and maybe I paint it. And maybe I don't. But then I want to play with it. And so the model comes first. And then the what rule system should I use for this model comes second, mm. as opposed to the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. and But then I think at the same time, it is that sort of I think the more natural sort of central bulk of people want to get as much value out of the thing they have acquired as they can. And the first blush of value is often, I love the mini and I love painting the mini. Oh, I understand there's a thing you do with this mini once, it, once it's painted, which is apparently enjoyable. I'd like to get that additional value out of the thing I've bought and they move on to it. I think that the sort of the, the, the tale of people who literally only paint and then put it on a shelf is, is quite 
um, thin. And I think part of the reason that maybe you can... Mm, maybe. It, Citation needed on that. Well, I, I, I think I, I, GW makes a good chunk of its money from people who don't play the games. Well, I, and this thing, I think it's interesting, but the, this is very much the point. Because there's, a, there's a whole collector there as well, where I want to collect things, even if I'm not that interested in painting or playing. But then it, I think it is equally interesting how many people are painting GW minis. And it's not, okay, they're high quality minis, but there are like minis like of, of, of a range of IPs in the world that are very nicely made and are very high quality that despite being bigger IPs, don't necessarily, I think, sometimes get as many people painting them. There's there's something about the the mechanical offering that you could be engaging with with these minis at some but point. But anyway, let's 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 anyway. let's move let's move on from GW because I think we're we're interested in what who exists and what can you do as a games designer. Yeah, and I think yeah, absolutely, there are people who are drawn to the idea of a particular mini collecting it and painting it. And obviously, if you're offering a miniatures agnostic game. How do you talk to those people? How do you get them in? How do you inspire them? Um, and I think that um, this is one of those areas where um, law, obviously, is, is one of the sort of obvious ways of, of tracking those people in. Um, and how you approach a miniatures agnostic um, set of law, um, set of uh, descriptive, uh, descriptive and narrative rules in a way that somebody who, despite the fact you don't have a miniature attached to like your game inherently, because you're not necessarily have that capacity, will want to pick up your book and read your book in order to go, oh, this is very inspiring for miniatures. And obviously a lot of that, I think will be driven by the sort of people who enjoy your game and evangelize about it and put pictures of their minis up online. And then somebody who wants to make minis looks at those mini, those pictures and go, what inspired this person? What inspired these creations? I must look about at this and gather my own inspiration from it. Um, and I think, I think there's, there's an accessibility question here as well, where, you know, you might be providing your own miniature line, and that makes it easier to get in. And then you might make your game more or less agnostic about whether you're using your specific miniature line, and that will increase or decrease the accessibility. And then there's also the expectations that you put on the player. So if you start to sort of suggest that they need to be, you know, representing all the weapon options in a what you see is what you get kind of a way, or with your art, you're sort of saying, hey, this is the kind of game where you have to convert every miniature in a sort of Ink 28 or, um, you know, or Sludge or, uh, or or similar kind of way where you're providing an aesthetic and you're sort of almost making a demand on the hobbyist. Um, like that reduces the accessibility, but it also increases the kind of attractiveness for a particular kind of player. And then in terms of the accessibility, you've also got this angle where, like, regardless of whether you're providing your own miniatures or not, if you go for a niche theme versus a very common theme, then that's also a super interesting way of, like, broadening the sort of catchment of types of hobbyists that you might get. Because if I'm making a World War II game in 28 mil, like, maybe I introduce some, some specific and unique elements, but I always know that basically most hobbyists are going to be able to find gear for that even if my game doesn't have miniatures or my miniatures aren't distributed everywhere. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a really strong point you sort of hit on there. And like referencing back to Sludge, uh, mm. and things like um, Forbidden Psalm, Last War, things like that. Games that do alternative historical aspects to it, because it's like, 
obviously there's tons of historical minis in the world there were historical minis like before you know a lot of gaming minis they're they're widely available and giving the person who's inspired by the background and the the modeling the opportunity to say you can pick up these guys super cheap everywhere you go and here's the twist i'd like you to put on them here's the way i'd like you to interact with them um i think is a really strong way of sort of uh, uh approaching those people and i think also and then allows the other end of the spectrum to go, yeah, but I can just put down like my World War II minis, right? It's it, It'll be fine. It, it won't look peculiar that I've not, you know, given them steam-powered rifles. It'll, they'll pass just fine. Because um, it's like, to my mind, one of the things that, that it makes me think of like when I first started playing Saga, I just started, I just used uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battle minis because they were close enough. And I think one of the ways of bringing together those two ends of this sort of player type is to give a, there's a, there's a generally available and you might well have in your collection close enough version where people won't look at you, mm. you know, askew when you put those guys down and say, these are sludge riflemen, they're Napoleonics, but you know, that'll pass. And then giving the other people who want to approach the modeling end of it before they even approach the game, this thing of saying, okay, look, here's an available range of miniatures, a widely available range of miniatures, and here's where I want you to go in and be inspired and engage with it. Yeah, and and Osprey have hit this really, really well a bunch of times. Like, you know... Setting aside the games uh, and whether they're played or not, like things like I'm like a great example recently is Joe McCulloch's Silver Bayonet. Like, can you get can you get Napoleonics in 28? Yes. Can you get Werewolves and Vampires in 28? Yes. Let's smash those together, and that's a super easy game to build for. Um, mm. The same thing uh, is even true with like um, uh, that game about um, Romans and and monsters fighting. Broken uh, legions. Broken legions. Yeah. Like you know, two very easily accessible, you know, quite a lot of like Roman stuff is available in plastics because of Warlord games. Like it's almost like pick two ranges of miniatures that are easy to uh, to, to acquire and smash them together. Like, can I get giant robots and dinosaur miniatures? Right, let's make a game out of those two. Absolutely. And I and I really do, personally, I really think this is one of those- Don't make a game about those two. That's, that's my job. <laughs> You're having that one. Yeah. I think this is one of those areas where particularly as an independent like designer, this is one of those places where you can deal with product design issues that you might not have the resources to deal with as an independent by intelligent game design you know yep. you can you can probably write a game for a range of settings and a range of of worlds um and i'm not saying sort of um like paint the theme on but i'm saying find genuine inspiration from a range of themes from a range of things that can solve your product problems before they arise it's like when we were talking about like some of the prototyping and and like when to start looking at miniatures for your games i think it's a good idea to check whether before you write an independent game that there are minis like easily accessible for it you know you yep. really will pay yourself out at the far end of it to the, the number of people who will pick the game up when you go you know, look, you've probably got these minis, or at least a version of these minis, and then you play it and I tell you, oh, the mini you've already got, why not do this with it? And you go, oh, that's very inspiring. And then 
and then you can hopefully create this sort of virtuous hobby loop because there is a yeah like like yeah like a good example of that is you know dracula's america takes two things that are easily accessible cowboys and vampires yes great we can play that game like i could i could write a game which is set in a um i could set make a game that's set in a 1920s like mental hospital gone mad a sort of arkham asylum thing and what i need is loads of doctors and orderlies and loads of cthulhu baddies and like okay i can get the cthulhu baddies can i get reasonably um easily doctors and orderlies from 1920s ah, not really like almost but not quite so that's going to be a difficult game to sell in even though it sounds cool yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that if, if you ever sort of approach wanting a significant level of unarmed sort of... Uh, oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> civilians, unarmed civilians, or just generally like non-combat miniatures. Yeah, and then, then this is where a little bit of sort of forward research when you're right there in that brainstorming phaser game can really pay dividends later on. Because there are a lot of things you where you I often sometimes think oh, this will be so easy to find. This will be really easy to find miniatures for. I'll start knocking together some ideas for it, and then I'll look up and find the minis for it. And it's like, no. And it's like, there are some things where, uh, as I've mentioned before, you can find zombies in every flavour on the internet. Can you find a businessman in a suit with a briefcase? Oh, no, no. Unless Only one with a bionic eye and a gun. Yeah, yeah, unless his guts are coming out or, you know, he's he's, he's holding a, a bazooka. And so, yeah, a little bit of looking for... Ah, the old business bazooka. <laughs> the old business... Fire my briefcase at you from range. Um, that's that's a game. Um, yeah, so a little bit of consideration... So, yeah, it sounds like the bit in Brazil where the paperwork explodes everywhere. Maybe you're just launching, like, four at people that they have to complete before they can activate. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, a little bit of sort of pre-consideration, a little bit of sort of forward research, um, considering where the the sort of again, we, we if you're designing an independent game, if you're designing a niche game, there's a bell curve of sort of hobby, and the 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 more easily you can like hit that bell curve and bring as many people in um you know reducing the the sort of the 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 cliff that they have to come into where you don't say um you need to acquire a whole bunch of very specific minis and like so, so i guess like well the, the what does mike do version of this so i've got three games published and they all basically approach this problem in the same way which is that i provide a table of generic units archetypes and so whether that's you know chassis of vehicles in gaslands whether it's classes of spaceships in um a billion suns or whether it's kind of unit types um of rank and flank sort of medieval uh combat combatants in hobgoblin um the other thing is that each of those games does not have uh and this might be a weakness that i'm not leaning into enough but like they don't have like an, a, a strange intersection of two genres that makes it more complicated they are just each a fairly um well understood sort of bang in the middle of that genre piece um and then they provide like from these generic shells they provide a fairly flexible set of build it how you want it kind of mechanics so that in each of these cases the basic rule system is saying yes whatever it is that you can find you can have and it will work in this game and it doesn't have the faction system isn't a 
breakdown of different factions where you're like okay these guys live in canoes and they have to be wearing triangular hats and if they're not wearing short trousers then they're not welcome in this faction because for a miniature agnostic game that's kind of irritating and not really very helpful and there are other miniature agnostic games that have those kinds of factions where they either do this successfully by saying um um by saying that you can use they, they basically they latch on to existing sort of subclasses of miniatures so whether it's like a kind of historical game where they're saying well these are kind of these are basically the english and the french and the spanish or a game like um your black your borders and black flags where it's like okay there's a there's an obviously an undead pirate faction there's obviously a normal pirate faction there's obviously like you know these different classes of miniatures that you can find from other manufacturers um but you get you run into the risk there where uh your 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 game isn't as like broadly accepting of any of the genre miniatures versus um what you and i have worked on which is creating faction systems that sort of encourage gameplay and theme to stick together but not in a model must look like x kind of a way yeah yeah and i think you, like when you're thinking about this when you're researching it thinking about the availability of these things like you know obviously with gaslands the thing the gaslands does it says you know the hot wheels car bash it up and make it post-apocalyptic super available base thing hobby opportunity with a billion sons not everybody's inherently going to have a fleet of spaceships so going any old fleet of spaceships genuinely because it, it's a bit more of a a, a cliff to acquire them. Um, a, a great example of this quickly, I think, is Frostgrave. You know, it, it, it basically says, do you own fantasy monsters? These are the fantasy monsters this game's going to be using. And not to sort of, you know, uh, you know, kick a game, but I've heard a few people uh, mention Ragnarok as being i think quite a difficult entry point because it has these monsters that are like super specific to to sort of nordic legend and a lot of people go oh what a cool game all right okay i've got to acquire an etin and a and a what and a how and so sometimes you can sort of bring people up short who really want to engage with the game because they think they have to acquire these things right and and the way that that game could have been written is to say like an etin is a giant giants can be Etins and giants and two-headed giants and frost giants and blah 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 and here's some like here's some suggested rules or some some variants but like what you're building is a giant and a giant will always work but if you're clever enough to go and find the one that most closely matches the viking then you know have a gold star but it, it's everything else still functions yeah so that warhammer giant you've got or that dungeons and dragons giant that you've got like those are fine too yeah absolutely I'll offer people a path in and then show them the mountain in many ways yeah yeah exactly like, okay, here's your base level <laughs> and here's what you could aim for and then you can find anywhere on that path to 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 inspire you um if you found a, a game that let you in very gently and then sort of tease you up to the top of the mountain where you ended up building uh, multiple armies of incredibly bespoke miniatures um please do let us know about it in the comments section um you know these games hopefully inspire people to 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 hobby and inspiring people to hobby is absolutely a virtuous circle for playing your game doing more hobby and therefore wanting to play the game more and wanting to talk to other people about the game so you know if there's been a game that has encouraged you to become an evangelist to talk to other people about it because how it brought you into the hobby side of it we'd love to to know about it love you to sort of drop down to the comment sections to tell us about it 
if you're in the comment section, there's a like button and a subscribe button right there. You may as well just give them uh, both a quick, quick punch. Um, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt you. No, absolutely. Um, once you've done that, swing by the Discord um, because there's a whole bunch of people inspired by miniatures and hobby and putting things together and, and using them in tabletops. And you'll be welcome and in in with friends if you go in there and talk about being inspired by by miniatures and, and hobby and games. Um, but for now, it's going to be a thank you and goodbye from this episode of Rule of Carnage. I hope that this was useful. Uh, so thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.